0: The following message is from the North Shore Christian Centre MP3 audio lounge. More information about North Shore Christian Centre is available at www.mscc.org.au. Easter for me is one of the most significant times of the year. And I feel so privileged to be a steward of the message of Easter, a trustee, if you will of the message. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the apostles got hold of the baton and they ran with it. And for their generation, they were the trustees of the message. They passed the baton on to the church fathers and the church fathers took that message and passed it on. And today, I'm one of those that have got the baton in my hand, this baton that was passed on from Jesus to the apostles, to the church fathers, and then in 2015, passed on to me. And one day, hopefully, I'm going to pass it on to someone else, and they will be the custodians of this message. And here we are on the north shore of Sydney, sharing this message, which is the greatest story Ever told? There is no greater story. There is no greater message of all the messages that exist upon our planet. This is the most important. And I feel privileged to be able to share it with you. Because Easter gives sense to our existence. Without Easter, it just doesn't make any sense why we're here. And people that don't believe in Easter can't give you sense for your existence. You're here by accident. You're here by chance. You're here by cosmic coincidence. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's not the right answer. The right answer is Jesus. Remember that. Every question, the answer is jesus isn't that funny (laughs) no cosmic cosmic coincidence does not make sense to thinking people what makes sense is that there where is wherever there is design there must be a designer does that make sense very good jesus (laughs) yeah we got the right answer now And this whole, the whole reason for us being here, the whole reason for our existence is all culminated in Easter and the story of Easter. And as I said, I feel so privileged this morning to share the story. Let me share the story out of John chapter 19. And we'll read verses 17 to 20 and then 28 to 30. It says this, And he bearing his cross went out to a place called called the place of a skull and the reason why it's called the place of a skull is because this hill actually looks like a skull Anne and I've been there it's now a bus stop in Jerusalem believe it or not but you can actually to this day still see the outline of the skull in Golgotha And uh, in, in Hebrew, it's called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Now, let's go to verse 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it. Is finished and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I want to talk to you this morning about those three words it is finished. What I want you to notice is that Jesus didn't say, I am finished, he said, It is finished. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the significance of these words. They were the last words that Jesus spoke before he commended his spirit to the Father. There are only seven words that we have recorded that Jesus spoke upon the cross. And these are the last words that Jesus said before he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said, it is finished. What? What's the significance? What was finished? And This morning, I want to talk to you about that. So in order for there to be a finish, there must be a start. So let's talk about how this whole thing started. And it started with probably one of the greatest verses that people have memorized in the Bible. It started with this incredible verse in John 3.16 that says, For God so... Love the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can I say this? That the true reflection of how much you love is found in what you're willing to give. The gift that you give and what you are willing to give is a true reflection of your love. We've got a wonderful couple that we are very close friends with. When they found out that their daughter had leukemia, had cancer... Their attitude is, was not, how can I get out of this on the cheap? Their attitude when their three-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia is, what can we do to save her life? What, what must we give? And they, they sold their house. They sold their car. They sold their, they, they did everything possible to try to save their daughter's life. Why is that? because the value that they put on their daughter was higher than the value on their home, was higher on the value of all of their possessions, all of their toys. They went into insignificance compared to the value of the little girl. Let me say it again. The true reflection of how much you love is found in what you're willing to give. So when we get back to this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's, that gives you an insight of how much God loved you and how much God loved me and what he was willing to give. So, so you say, but, 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 but why did he have to do that? Well, that's how this story starts. This story starts with, with God's love for humanity and humanity's rebellion against God. God's love versus man's rebellion. You say, but 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 I'm not a rebellious person. Well, under whose definition? Under your definition or under God's definition? Because when it comes to rebellion in the Garden of Eden, it was as simple as eating a piece of fruit. You say, what? what's so bad about eating a piece of fruit? Well, the fact was that God said, don't eat the piece of fruit. He said, but, but that's not a great sin. It is when God says don't. So whenever God says don't and we do, that's rebellion. So here's the question. Have you always, always obeyed the will of God for your life? You say, you say, you say well, well, I've tried to. No, no, I'm not talking about trying. I'm talking about accomplishing. Have you ever done one thing that's against God's will. In other words, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever cheated on an exam? Have you ever cheated on your taxes? <laughs> oh my goodness! Now you, now you're really going deep, and, and you're just making me uncomfortable now. Now I'm, I'm talking about rebellion is locked up in the heart of man, and rebellion is God's definition of sin. Sin is disobeying the will of God. Some of you don't even know what the will of God is. In order to define what rebellion is, you've got to know what the will of God is. And if you don't know what the will of God is, then let me tell you 100% guaranteed that you haven't done what God wants. The Bible defines that as sin. And when we sin, we become lost to God. You say, but but John, you're making me uncomfortable. Let's talk about goodness. No, this story starts with sin. And what's happening today is that sin is being sugar-coated and at the risk of offending people, a lot of churches don't talk about sin anymore. They've sugar-coated it. No, you know, like everybody makes mistakes and whatever. Let's call it what it is. Sin is offensive to God and sin separates man from God and until you acknowledge that you've sinned you don't need salvation and there's no purpose for Jesus dying on the cross for you because the whole culmination of his death on the cross was to do with your sin and so his God's way of making restoration to the lostness of man. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know what? For some people, to say they're lost is the hardest thing on the planet, especially if you're a bloke. How many of you blokes just will not admit you're lost? We'll go around this. We'll go around the street. We'll find a way. We'll go left or right. When your wife says, are we lost? No, no, I, I'm just I just know where I am. Just just give me a few minutes and I'll just rearrange myself and we just didn't we pass that building half an hour ago? Yeah, but I'm approaching it from a different angle. Come on. Just stop and admit I'm lost. You know, someone once said, if Moses was a woman, they wouldn't have been in the wilderness for 40 years she would have stopped and asked for directions. (laughs) Okay, sorry, enough nonsense. Pay attention. God makes a way to restore the lost. But if you're not lost, then you won't admit that you need restoration. It's when you're lost and you can admit it that you can accept the restoration. Then what happens is this. Is, is that there's this middle section. And the middle section is where Jesus actually walks upon this planet. Folks, let me give you an inside story. We've had extraterrestrial visitation on this planet. We've had someone walk on this planet that comes from elsewhere. You say, what? We've had an extraterrestrial visitor? Yes. His name is Jesus. Come on, that's the right answer. His name is? That's the right answer. What? Jesus was an extraterrestrial? Yeah, he came from heaven. God took on flesh and walked amongst us, is what John chapter 1, verse 14 says. God took on humanity. And walked amongst us. And he declared to us what God was really like. How many of you know that? It's one thing to think you know what God is really like. It's another thing for God to tell us what he's really like. And there's nothing like what we call in theological terms the incarnation. God becoming flesh. For God to tell us what he's really like. Because in the Old Testament, they tried to work it out. But they didn't quite get it right. But then God comes and walks amongst us and he he reveals to us a God of amazing love. When I read the story of Jesus, I see amazing love, not just love, but amazing love. I just see the way that Jesus treated people. And it's with such grace and compassion. I just love the way that Jesus treated children. I just, you know, I love children and children love me. And, and Jesus is my role model in the way that he just loved children. Jesus loved people. Jesus loved the humble. Jesus loved the penitent. Jesus loved everyone who was in need and came to him with a need. It was like Jesus embraced them. But you know what happens sometimes? We don't see the flip side. We get so focused in on the God of love that we get blinded to the God of justice. What would Jesus do is a great question. How about making a whip? How about overturning tables and chasing people who are running for the fear of their lives? You say, Jesus wouldn't do that. He did that in the temple. You say, what? The God of love became the God of justice when he goes into his father's house and found that they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. Rather than being a place of prayer, it was a place of commerce. And all of a sudden, you see Jesus flipping to the God of justice and chasing them out with a whip in his hands. What would Jesus do? Chase people out of the temple who weren't there for the right reasons. Say, hey, come on, get this right. He wasn't just a God of love. He was a God of justice. How about this for name calling? You brood of vipers. What would Jesus call people that? He did. He called the scribes and Pharisees, you brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He said, but that's offensive. Jesus was offensive because he was offended by people that were not humble in their approach. Let me tell you something. Wherever Jesus saw humility, he bathed them in love. Whenever Jesus saw pride and arrogance, and anti-God mentality of pride and arrogance, you better believe the God of justice came out and they were in trouble, folks. We've got to get this right, that with love, the balance is justice. And if we don't get this right, then we miss out on fully understanding the real message of Jesus. But you know what? Not only did he come to reveal the God of justice, the God of love, but he came to reveal the message of the kingdom of God. And I love this because the message of the kingdom of God is how we should live life. Everybody is telling you how you should live life. But Jesus came to tell us. The media, the journalists, everybody is telling us how to live life. How to live life. We can't call terrorists Islamic terrorists anymore because that might be offending some Islamic people. Well, as far as I know, the common denominator amongst some of these terrorist groups is Islam. And you say, but that's being offensive. That's the truth of it all. And if the truth offends, so be it. And I'm telling you that Jesus offended people constantly because he spoke the truth. Listen, let me tell you something. I don't want to be politically correct. I just want to be correct. And too often, political correctness gags the truth. Out of our fear of offending, we are gagged from the truth. I'm going to tell you, Jesus was not politically correct. He was just correct. And I want to be someone who emulates Jesus, not in being gagged, but in speaking the truth. I always want to speak the truth in love. I always want to speak the truth in a compassionate way, but not allow political correctness to gag the truth because I do you a disservice if I don't speak the truth to you. When Jesus spoke, He spoke about the culture of the kingdom of God. He spoke about the culture of heaven. And when you read the New Testament, you see that what Jesus did, he came, he stepped out of heaven and he said, this is the way we do things at home. This is the way that we operate in the kingdom of heaven. And now I'm introducing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And if you can do what we do in heaven, you'll have heaven on earth. Can I just say to you, it's impossible to have peace upon this planet without embracing the laws of the kingdom of heaven. Peace will never come upon this planet until we embrace the Prince of Peace and the teachings of the Prince of Peace. There will never be peace. Why is that? Because every other teaching is contrary and contradictory to the teachings of Jesus that he came to share with us on planet Earth. Just one of the teachings is this. If you want to be great in the kingdom, become the servant of all. Wow. You want to be great in your home? Begin to serve everybody. Had hey, children, you want to be great at home? Serve your parents. No. There's rebellion right there. And the answer to that rebellion is Jesus. Jesus. There we go. <laughs> I love having kids in the audience. They're awesome. Okay, so you've got the start. You've got the middle, the finish. What were the three things that Jesus was referring to when he said, it is finished? Okay, let me give it to you. Three things. There's probably more, but I want to focus on three things that Jesus was, was referring to when he said, it is finished. First thing that he was referring to, what was finished, was the confusion over the way of salvation. That's finished. No confusion anymore. It's clear. It's clear. You say, was there a confusion? Totally, my goodness. Anytime that you've got to work for your salvation, there's confusion. Have you worked enough? Have you done enough things? Have you kept enough laws? Why? There were only 10 commandments. But the question was, have I kept them? Have I done the right thing? How many of you remember the story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 Verses 16 to 20, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you've got to keep the commandments. He says, well, I've done this ever since I was a kid. Do I lack anything? I think that I'm right, but is there something that I've missed? He wasn't sure. He's someone that ever since he was a little kid tried to do the right thing. And gets to a certain point in life where he's still confused about salvation. Can I just say to you that the biggest confusion that this world has when it comes to salvation is about you being good enough to deserve salvation. That's the biggest confusion. And it's like, it's like people have got in their head that at the end of the day, there's this balance. You get weighed in the balances. And it's like... It's like the ethereal, mystical God in the sky puts you on a set of balances, and if you've got more good than bad, click, you're right. So that's called you earning it. My question for you is, how do you know that you've done enough? How do you know that you're good enough? How do you know how much a good thing weighs versus a bad thing? How do you know that if, if, if a good thing weighs one measure, that a bad thing doesn't weigh a trillion measures? How do you know that? And who told you that? And what guarantee do you have? Can I just declare to you emphatically that Jesus came to take away the confusion. When he came into this world, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He removed the confusion by building the bridge between man and God. And I want to say emphatically today, I want to say to you, not through political correctness, but through biblical correctness, that there is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He is the way the truth and the life there is no other way but through Jesus he removes the confusion second thing that Jesus said was finished was the claim of the enemy over your life first thing he removes is the confusion the second thing he removes is the claim the claim of the enemy You say, well, what's the claim of the enemy? Oh, yeah, let me tell you something. That as soon as you sin, the enemy has a claim over your life. And the enemy's claim is that all who sin will die. All who sin will perish. All who sin have eternal judgment. You say, what? I'm telling you, the stain of sin marks you for the enemy. And while there's a mark of sin upon your life, the enemy has a claim upon your life. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says how Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. That's the enemy. That is the devil. And released those who through fear of death were the whole life subject to bondage. What does that mean? That means this, that the enemy's claim subjects you to bondage. And for so many people, there's this fear of death. Oh, no, what happens when I die? What happens when I die? What happens if I'm not right with God? Well, let me tell you, if you're not right with God, the enemy has a claim over your life. And Jesus died to put an end to the enemy's claim over your life. He died to destroy the power of death over your life, to destroy the power of the enemy. And again, for some people, John, you're putting fear into people's life. No, I'm trying to take the fear out of your life. I'm trying to put faith and hope into your life and tell you that Jesus died in order to remove the fear of death out of your life where Paul was able to see death. Where is your sting? Your sting has been destroyed through Jesus Christ the claim of Satan over your life has been destroyed through Jesus Christ. He no longer has a claim over your life if Jesus is in your life. You become the property of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the claim of the enemy. How many of you think that's exciting? Let me tell you the third thing that Jesus came to finish. The first was the confusion. The second was the claim. And the third is the conviction against your name. There was a conviction against your name. How many of you know this? The conviction is a legal term, and the legal term, and the, you can understand that in heaven, there's there's the picture of heaven is like a courtroom, and the and God the Father is seen as the judge, and the Bible says that in the last days the books will be opened, the books will be opened, and so. And then, then it talks about a book will be opened. And so here it is. For everyone who's not a Christian, for every person who does not have their name written in the book of life. And the book of life is the book of heaven. It's like a registry book every single person that's going to live in heaven forever will have the name in the book of life. How many of you got your name written in the book of life? You know for sure that you've got your name written in the book of life. That's awesome. Because the alternative is this, that there's a book of conviction. And the book of conviction has your name at the top. And underneath is every single thing that you've done wrong. Every single thing. It's like there's a videotape recording of your whole life. And it'll have everything that you've done wrong. And you can sit there in court and say, but I did this right. I did this right. I did that right. It's like, it's like when you get pulled over for speeding, hopefully not this weekend because it's double the merits. And you say to the policeman, but I didn't speed last week. And he, t- and he, st- and he looks you in the eye and he says, I'm not booking you for not speeding last week. I'm booking you for speeding right now. But, but you know, I, I, I've had my license now for, for, for three months and I've not sped once. He says, I don't care that you've had it for three months. I'm booking you for speeding now. And so often we try to justify our mistakes by pointing to the good things. But the judge says, you're not in court because of the good things you've done. You're in court because of what you've made as a mistake. And so the books will be open. But let me tell you something. All of those are convictions against your name. But Jesus died to blot out the conviction. That word, it is finished. I love it. It's a Greek word called teteleste. Everybody say teteleste. And teteleste actually means paid in full. You know, the beautiful thing is this, that in the days of Jesus... When you owed a debt and you paid the debt, some big letters were written over your debt. And the big letters written over your debt was "Te teleste, which in today's language means paid in full. In those days, it meant it is finished. And so when Jesus uttered from the cross, te, teleste, not only did he say it is finished, he said paid in full. The conviction against your name, the penalty against your name has been paid in full. The blood that Jesus shed upon the cross was the blood that was able to wash away every single one of your sins. Every single conviction washed. And now when the books are opened, all that God sees is paid in full. It is finished. Your conviction is gone. The claim of Satan on your life is gone. The confusion about salvation is gone. The debt has been paid. We used to sing a song when I was a little kid. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's what Jesus did. He paid a debt I could not pay. I owed a debt I could not pay. And this morning, when he declares, you free from conviction, free from sin, free from the curse, free from the claim, he then switches it over and says, now I declare you to be holy, righteous, pure, guilt-free, no conviction against your name. That's what Jesus came to do 2,000 years ago. Thanks for listening to this message from the North Shore Christian Centre Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at www.nscc.org.au. Through our website, you can keep up to date with what's happening in the life of our church in Chatswood, New South Wales, as well as accessing other free resource materials.